Refuge Ministries presents part two of Daniel Joseph's teaching on blasphemy. Enjoy. Today we are going to be we're going to be circling back and continue to look at one of the most terrifying subjects in all of the Bible, and that is blasphemy. There are some things that, unfortunately, I didn't get to cover last week that I wanted to cover. And so we're going to do that today. There's just some things naturally, with some of the stuff we talked about last week, there's a natural segue that happens into some particular, shall I say, passages in Scripture and uh, places we need to go. So we're going to do that today. Now, if you remember last week, we began to answer that unnerving question. And what was that question? Why is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit unforgivable? I mean, what is it about this sin that makes it so special, that puts it up in a place of exclusivity? From every other sin named under heaven, it is every other sin, you think about it, every other sin named under heaven can be forgiven. But not this sin. Why? What is it about this sin that is unforgivable? Well, as we began to investigate this last week, we discovered that the secret to answering this question is actually found right within the passage itself where we found this. In other words, Matthew 12. Because right there we found Yeshua. He tells us something. He reveals information. He told us something happened when he cast out the demon out of the man and he was blind and mute. He both spoke and saw something happened in their midst. The people that experienced this, they experienced something. And what was that? Well, let's take a look. In Matthew chapter 12, verse uh, 28, we read, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, here it is, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. The people who had witnessed this great miracle of Yeshua casting out a demon, they experienced something. They experienced the kingdom of God. And understanding this is the key to being able to understanding that daunting question of why blasphemy against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven. It can't be forgiven because of the experience itself. It can't be forgiven because of the way the people responded to that experience. That's why it cannot be forgiven. The kingdom of God had come upon them, and instead of being in awe, instead of giving God glory, they responded by calling good evil and evil good, saying that Yeshua only casts out demons by the ruler of demons. And thus, what do they end up doing? They end up rejecting the kingdom of God. They end up rejecting Yeshua. So how does Yeshua respond to this situation? Well, he responds by making the most terrifying statement found in all of Scripture. Whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. Scariest passage in the Bible. I want to shed some further light upon this concept this concept where there is no forgiveness of sins because we don't just find this concept mentioned in the book of Matthew. We don't just find this concept mentioned in the book of Enoch as we looked last week. We also find it listed or mentioned in the book of Hebrews 
And it's mentioned multiple times. So today, we're going to begin by going to the book of Hebrews. And we're going to look at two particular passages there. Both are similar in nature. Both speak to one another. In other words, when we read one passage, we'll understand it better by looking at the other. And vice versa. And by looking at these passages, I think you're going to have a more refined understanding of this concept in general. So with that said, I want to take you to the sixth chapter of Hebrews, verse 4, and we read the following. For it is impossible. I want to be very clear on something. When you go to the Greek on this, adunatos, there is no question. The English rendering of adunatos is accurate. Impossible. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Now, what do you suppose he's talking about when he says the powers of the age to come? It is none other than the kingdom of God. That is what is being referenced here. The kingdom of God. All right? Now, the writer tells us that it is impossible for those who have experienced the kingdom of God. All right? You got this? Who have tasted the good word of God, partook of the Holy Spirit, moving to verse 6, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. Since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God, and put him to an open shame. Now, I know what you're thinking right now is, oh boy, why didn't I go on vacation for these last two weeks? Passages like this, this is as heavy as it gets. What are we as believers supposed to do with this? How are we supposed to look at this passage? Is the writer stating that uh, if we become partakers of the Holy Spirit, if we've had that experience of the kingdom of God, If, in fact, we sin, there's no more that can be done. Is that what the writer is saying here? You know, when you step back and you look at the framework that is presented here, it sounds a lot like the framework that exists in Matthew 12, where Yeshua says, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. And let me explain what I mean by framework. When you go to Matthew 12, you see the framework that... Something happened in their midst. They experienced the kingdom of God. The response was sin. And in effect, because of that sin, there is no forgiveness. That's the framework when you look at it. I come here to Hebrews 6. There's an eerie similarity. The framework is you've experienced the kingdom of God. You sinned. Nothing more can be done. Similar framework. But what is the writer saying? That if we sin after we come into the faith, we're eternally lost? Well, as we continue in this passage, we're going to find that the writer of Hebrews is going to give a little more clarification, fortunately. All right? He's going to help us understand exactly what he is getting at, what he means. And to ensure that there isn't any confusion, we're going to see that the writer does something here that is absolutely brilliant. It's something that is actually found throughout the New Testament over and over again. It's common amongst great Jewish teachers, and that is he's going to utilize a literary technique. He's going to utilize a teaching technique 
where he's going to repeat what he just said in this passage, only he's going to do so in a different manner. In other words, through an analogy. This first, if you will, punch in the face, in, in Hebrews 6, verse 4 through 6, it's a spiritual concept, laying it out right on the floor, telling you how it is. But now he's going to take a spiritual concept and he's going to render it down and bring it into an analogy, into the physical realm, something that is tangible, that we can all touch and feel, that we can relate to. This is beautiful. It's a very intelligent approach when it comes to teaching. Because it ensures that your audience is actually going to receive the true intent of the teaching itself. It's, it's like putting up guardrails, if you will, ensuring that your audience is, you're going to limit the liability that's going to happen here with their understanding. So that there isn't misunderstanding, that they're not misguided. So with that said, let's take a look at what the writer is going to go on to say. But just so that this flows smoothly, I want to briefly reread what we just read and then we'll go on. Uh, as he continues. Uh, verse 4, again, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Verse 7, For the earth, this is the reiteration. He's going to say the exact same thing, but bringing it into physical terms. For the earth which drinks in the rain. Now keep in mind here, in his analogy, the earth represents us. It represents peoples. The peoples of the earth which drinks in the rain. What do you think the rain is? The rain is the kingdom of God. It is the Ruach HaKodesh. It's the Holy Spirit. Rain throughout Scripture has been known as, it's identified as blessing. That's what it is. It's the blessing from God. And so here you have the earth drinking in the rain, experiencing the kingdom of God that often comes upon it, and listen to this, and bears herbs useful. The writer is very careful here to describe what type of herbs. They are useful herbs for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars... and in other words, here you have rain coming upon the people, the earth, and some of the earth, some of the people who have experienced this rain are bearing herbs useful. And now we have others, same experience, but instead of bearing herbs that are useful, something else is springing up, something else is growing. And we're told it is thorns and briars. And what happens with these thorns and briars? It is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. So what is the writer of Hebrews saying here? It's pretty obvious. If you've received the blessing of God, if you tasted the kingdom of God, yet you go on willfully sinning, you are of those who produce thorns and briars. And what's the expectation? There is only one expectation. Death, eternal judgment. You're going to be rejected, just as those in Matthew 12 were rejected. It is an eternal rejection. Now, I do want to point out here, while the framework of Matthew 12, Hebrews 6, we find it is similar, there is a significant distinction that needs to be made here. 
The situations are slightly different. In other words, what those men did in, in, in Matthew 12, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, is slightly different than what is being explained here in Hebrews 6. It is slightly different. You think of it, in people in Matthew 12, they're confronted immediately with the power of the living God moving in their midst, God showing compassion upon a man, literally a demon fleeing, okay? And their response is, that is evil. That is wickedness. They called the kingdom of God vile. And thus we know the rest of the story that they'll never be forgiven. Whereas what the writer of Hebrews is dealing with, he's dealing with deception. He is dealing with individuals who have come into the faith of Yeshua and they're walking out their life, but they're grabbing onto the things of the world and they're not letting go. And they're taking the position, if you will, that I don't care. I will do what I want to do. It doesn't matter. And then yet they still want to cling on to the name of Yeshua. So a distinction needs to be made, and I, I think this distinction will become clear as we continue. And what I want to do is I want to take you to 10 now, Hebrews chapter 10, because this is the parallel statement to what we just read in Hebrews 6. Hebrews 10, verse 26, For if we sin willfully, key component here, key descriptor, if we sin willfully after, that's the Greek meta, that's not before, not before we came into the faith. This is talking explicitly about after we come into the faith. After we have received the knowledge of the truth. And here's this frightening statement. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And it's interesting, this statement parallels that statement we covered last week. Remember in Galatians chapter 2, where Paul says, if we seek to be justified by Christ, by the Mashiach, Yet, we ourselves are found sinners. Is Christ a minister of sin? Well, it's a rhetorical question. Of course not. Paul's saying, you are deceived and you are walking in blasphemy. You are blaspheming the name of the Lord by doing this. This statement is a parallel to what we're reading on the screen right now. A person who has the truth, who is in the faith and yet willfully sins, there's simply, and listen to me carefully, there simply isn't a means of atonement. Atonement is reserved for the repentant. Atonement is reserved for the brokenhearted, for those who willingly confess their sins, who mourn their failures and long for redemption. They long for righteousness. They long for Yeshua. That's who repentance is reserved for. In fact, this concept that I am sharing with you can actually be found right within the Torah itself. It's interesting that when the Torah speaks of how the children of Israel were to make atonement, there was a specific, a specific prescribed manner that they were to follow to receive this forgiveness, to receive this atonement. And what's so interesting is that we find the Torah uses a specific word to describe the type of sin that would be atoned for. And so, just to bring this into further light, I want to take you to the Torah and show you what I'm talking about. In Leviticus, Vayikra, chapter 4, verse 13, we read, If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, note, 
That is the opposite of willfully, unintentionally. This is the description of the sin. And the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done something against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which should not be done and are guilty. And then it just goes on to give the prescribed manner. They're supposed to lay their head, their hands on the bull. The priest would make atonement, so on and so forth. The point I want to make here is that what type of sin is being atoned for? Unintentional. Let's move ahead to verse 22. When a ruler has sinned and does something unintentionally. Shagaga in the Hebrew. It's unintentional. Not willing, not a willful sin, but unintentional. Shagaga. Verse 27. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally. Over and over again. This is the prescription that we see that Torah allows, that provided for atonement for. It's for the sins that were not willfully being committed, but those that were unintentionally committed. You will not find anywhere in Scripture where atonement is provided for those who are willingly walking in rebellion. You cannot find it anywhere. It doesn't exist. The point I want to make here is that right within the Torah we see that the avenue provided for atonement it was only open to those who had soft hearts who had a true repentant spirit. And they didn't do this willfully out of a rebellious heart. You know, the Bible gives us some great examples of men who fell into this deception, of men who willfully sinned. Men of the like such as Cain, Abel's brother. Cain was filled with perversity. He was filled with hatred and contempt. Did the Lord accept his offering? He did not. The Lord rejected Cain's offering. He rejected Cain. Why did he reject his offering? Well, Proverbs gives us some insight as to why Cain's offering was rejected. In Proverbs 15, verse 8, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. There is no avenue for atonement for the wicked. Exodus 23, the Lord says that he will not justify the wicked. Psalms 5 says that he hates, read it, he hates all workers of iniquity. This is how the Lord feels about the wicked, about wickedness. Another great example is Esau. What did Esau do? He sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. The spiritual connotation there was that he sold his eternal inheritance for just a moment of pleasure for his flesh. That's the spiritual connotation. Look at what the writer of Hebrews, how he comments on this. Hebrews 12, verse 16. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, listen to this, you know afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. He sought it diligently with tears, and he found no place for it. Similar to the situation in the book of Enoch, where the angels were doing the same thing. Weeping and mourning that there would be no forgiveness for them. Now, notice, what was it about Esau that put him into that proverbial category 
where there is no longer a sacrifice for sins. What is it? It was his heart. It was the fact that he found no place for repentance that comes, that stems from his heart. And thus he lived in rebellion. Lawlessness habitually leading to more lawlessness. It's what I would call the carousel of death. This is what happened to Saul, who, remember, was anointed. And yet, every step of the way, he ended up making one bad decision after another. He kept walking away from God, yet proclaiming, I'm keeping the commandments of the Lord. And the Lord took his mercy away from King Saul. You can find that in Chronicles. Now, going back to Hebrews chapter 10, I want to finish the thought, because the writer makes some important points here, which are vitally important when discussing this topic and understanding it in its fullness. Hebrews 10.26, For if we willfully sin after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Verse 28, Anyone who has rejected uh, Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? There is a serious, very serious misconception that is plaguing the church by and large right now. And that is this whole perspective of how we as believers in Yeshua should be responding to what he has done for us. There is a frightening atmosphere today where many believers carry the perspective that, well, prior to Yeshua's coming, well, yeah, we really did need to fear God. But now after Yeshua's come, well, we can breathe easier now. We can kind of let it all hang out. We carry this mentality of don't worry, be happy, right? When the reality is the exact opposite, It was one thing to sin under the old covenant. Horrible. And as the writer just mentioned, you die without mercy when you rejected Moshe, when you rejected Torah. You died without mercy. But let me tell you something. If you sin while under the new covenant, it is a far worse crime. Why? Because of the price that was paid. Because of Yeshua's life. He gave his life. It is a far worse crime to sin today, to break a commandment today, than it ever was prior to Yeshua's coming. Listen to what Paul says in Acts, and you pick up on this, because Paul understood this concept. Acts 17, verse 30, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. He's talking about all the previous ages. But now commands all men everywhere to repent. The Messiah Yeshua had come. And now into the entire world it went out. A trumpet, a shofar blast went out. Turn and repent. It's an intense message. There's a twisted and perverse seduction that has allured far too many believers into taking a lethargic approach to the Word of God. A lethargic approach to sin. Far too many believers today view their own actions as something that, well... It has no bearing on salvation. What I do in this life has no bearing on the life to come. It doesn't matter because Yeshua paid the price. So what I do has no bearing. 
The Bible says the exact opposite. The Bible says that what you do has bearing on the age to come. That's why the wrath of God, we read in Ephesians 5 and we read in Colossians 3, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Disobedient. You think about that. The wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. What you do in this life, do not be deceived. It will make a difference in the, in the age to come. Any question of this? Read Matthew 25. Read what Yeshua says. Why he allows people to come into the kingdom of heaven and why he rejects them. It's because when he was naked, they didn't clothe him. And when he was thirsty, they didn't give him drink. And when he was in prison, they didn't come and visit him. These are all acts. These are all deeds. Let me take you to 1 John because John wants to throw his two shekels in on this as well. You look at this. 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Now, when you see men like this making statements, let no one deceive you, what is about to follow, he understands there is great deception involved. There is great deception involved in this. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices, it's beautiful, I love how, you know, I just want to be clear on this. He's not writing to little children who are five, six years old. Although it would include them. But what a beautiful way to open up a statement, little children, because all of us are to be like children. And unless we become like children, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven, amen? So you see this beautiful opening, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous. Man, you think about what he says in actually the chapter before, 1 John 2, 3. For by this we know that we know him. How? If we keep his commandments. That's the test. We look at ourselves. The things that we're doing in this age matter. And we're actually supposed to test ourselves, put ourselves up against the word of God, up against Torah. How do I look? How is my walk? How does the Lord see me? When I go to the Word of God, if I want to see uh, how the Lord sees me, I have to view the Word. It exposes us. It exposes our nakedness. It's the power of the Word of God. He who practices righteous, uh, righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He's obviously referring to none other than Yeshua. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God. It's important you understand the terminology John is using here because he uses it in his gospel. Remember that beautiful discourse in John chapter 3 that uh, Yeshua is having with a Pharisee named Nicodemus? This kind of takes you back to the 80s. You know, the, the 80s weren't all bad. Some good things came out of the 80s. One of the beautiful things that came out of it is there was a move in evangelical Christianity where people started asking you, not if you're a Christian, are you born again? Are you a born again Christian? They would clarify. They wanted clarification. And this was beautiful because Yeshua said to Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. We need to be born again. And here John says, whoever has been born of God, referring to this rebirth through faith in the Messiah Yeshua, a re, you're being reborn. 
what does he say? Whoever has been born of God does not sin. How is that possible? He does not sin. Well, John tells us, for his seed remains in him. Who is his seed? It is the Ruach HaKodesh. That is the seed. Because the seed remains in him, he cannot sin because he has been born of God. I still haven't gotten to the looming question. Is the writer of Hebrews saying, is John saying that once you've been born again, experienced the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God, that you will never sin again, that you will never slip and fall? Let me take it a step further. Is John saying that after you've come into the faith, that if you do sin, you can never be saved? You're lost, eternally lost. Well, when it comes to extremely dire situations in Scripture like what we are covering today, life and death scenarios, it's imperative that we step back. We have to step back. We have to look at the bigger picture. In other words, we have got to allow Scripture to speak for itself. Because if we do, if we step back and we look at the totality of Scripture, I promise you it will do the interpretation for you lest you fall into your own deceptions and your own desires and commit eisegesis, reading into the text, versus committing exegesis and drawing out of the text. And so with that said, I want to step back and I want to look at Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, we're going to read about David. And he's mourning, and you'll pick up on that, because the psalm was written after David was confronted about his sin with Bathsheba. And one thing I can tell you for all of us, I mean, all of the Word of God is beautiful. All of it is good. It holds great meaning. But every one of us has special passages that speak to us that hold an extra great meaning for us in our lives. I can tell you that Psalm 51, for me, is one of the most powerful passages in all of Scripture. It is one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. It is a passage that talks about salvation and what it really looks like, what it looks like to have a repentant heart, how beautiful the forgiveness of sins really is, and the mercy that God gives, and to whom He gives it. It's one of the most powerful passages in all of Scripture for me. It's very special. So I want to take you there because this is going to shed light on that question. That after we come into the faith, if in fact we sin, is he, the writer of Hebrews telling me and John telling me, there is no more salvation. We're, we're cut off forever. Well, let's take a look. In Psalm 51, verse 1, we read, To the chief musician, a psalm, a mismore, le David, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Immediately right at the front end here, we see David's eyes are opened to his sin. And here's the key. How does he respond? When his eyes are open to his sin, does he shrug his shoulders and sweep it under the rug and say, you know, I kind of like this type of stuff. I'm going to continue to do it. No, he mourns. He was crushed. 
He was literally crushed. He mourned his actions and began immediately to cry out to God. Moving to verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. One of the most important things you need to remember when it comes to obtaining forgiveness of sins is this fact right here, what we just saw happen. You are not going to be forgiven your sins if you, unless you first confess them. And this is exactly what John tells us in 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're told in Psalm 34, everyone who is godly will pray to him for this very reason, for forgiveness of sins. You must confess. That's the first step. And so we see this beautifully laid out here that David moves to confess his sins. And we jump ahead to verse 6. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. What do you suppose he's talking about in the inward parts? The heart. He desires truth in the heart. The Lord, his, in his eyes, we see over and over again in Scripture, his eyes go to and, forth, uh, to and fro throughout the earth. And what is he doing? He's looking at the hearts of men. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. I love this, on how this atonement goes. Where does David lie all his hope? Where does he put all his trust? In the Lord. It is the Lord that cleanses us from sin. And so purge me with hyssop, I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Jumping ahead to verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take, do not take, your Holy Spirit, from me. Let me ask you, if David is crying out to the Lord for him to not take the Holy Spirit from him, what does this tell us? Well, how could you ever take something that he never originally had? What's my point? David was anointed. He had the Spirit of God resting upon him prior, now keep this in mind, prior to committing the sin, David had the Ruach HaKodesh. He had the anointing. And this is an extremely important fact to possess when you consider what was said right here in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened. Right, tasting the, 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 the heavenly gift, right? Tasting the good word of God, the powers of the age to come. If they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. Again, going back to, well, is the writer of Hebrews stating that you'll be lost forever if in fact you sin? after you've been enlightened, after you've received the Holy Spirit? And the answer is to that, not necessarily. Proof of this is found right in the story of King David. King David had the Holy Spirit prior to committing the sin. All right? Was David lost forever? No. Was David terrified? Yeah. There's no question. And rightfully so. Because David knew what was on the line. He fully appreciated the devastation that he had committed. David was terrified. He knew exactly what the effects of sin are. 
They separate you from God. And that's what crushed him. He did not want to be separated from his God, whom he loves so much. Consider the following when he says in Psalm 51, verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Well, my point is, if you know the story of David, you know that the story didn't end with Bathsheba. That his salvation did not end upon committing that sin. David goes on to be an amazing king of Israel. And he did retain the joy of his salvation. He did remain anointed throughout the rest of his life. And God was with him in the mightiest of mighty ways. Just go and read the text. It's all there. God was with him in a very awesome way. Now we go on to verse 16. We read, For you did not desire sacrifice, or I would give it. You did not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. What does this tell us? This is, this is why this psalm is so beautiful. It all comes down to the matter of the heart. This is what God is seeking. He is seeking a humble and contrite heart. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. David, he had that conviction. He didn't sever the conviction of godly sorrow. He didn't become a spiritual anesthesiologist. He actually embraced that, confessing his sin, and he found a place for repentance. He found that place, a place that Esau never found. David found it. He thirsted after righteousness. He hated his failure. You starting to understand what I'm trying to get across, making the distinction? What the writer of Hebrews had said is without a doubt accurate and true. You willfully sin, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That is a true statement. And John, what John said, that if you sin, you're of the devil. That is a true statement. I don't dispute those at all. In fact, I stand by them. But it is, doesn't technically refer to the fact that if after you've come into the faith, you slip and fall, that you're eternally lost. So we might as well just throw our arms up and all go out to the bar. This is what Satan wants you to think. This is, he wants to beat you down. Don't allow him to do it. The best way to articulate what I am trying to tell you is to take you back to 1 John because he does it brilliantly. Can't be improved upon. He lays this all out so beautifully. And this is what he says in 1 John 1.6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. Now, over and over again, these are these passages we're reading. If we willfully sin after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains sacrifice for sin. So this is the same statement. He's making the same statement. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet we're walking in darkness, we're sinning, we lie to ourselves. We are not practicing the truth. Again, going back to Galatians 2, what Paul says. All of these statements line up. They're all saying the same thing. All of these Authors are saying the same exact thing. Verse 7, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Yeshua Mashiach, 
His Son cleanses us from all sin. It's interesting that if you walk in the light as He is in the light, this goes back to John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. That goes back to Psalm 103. The only mercy that is going to be given to anyone is to those who keep His covenant, that keep His commandments. And here John is saying the exact same thing that all of Scripture testifies to. Mercy is given to those who follow Him who walk in the light. It is then the blood of Yeshua will cleanse us from all sins. If, uh, verse verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Moving to verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And this, he is so crafty and careful. When you actually step back and you study this passage intently, you go to it, you realize how he structured this is beyond man. He structured this so brilliantly, this can only be the divine work of the Holy Spirit. And what's so amazing here is he begins, he lays out the truth, the reality of what's actually happening, that if we say we have fellowship with him, well... And we walk in darkness, we're liars. Only those who walk in the light are truly with him. But then at the same time, he says, but wait a second. If you say you've never sinned, well, you're a liar. Because that's not true. Because the scriptures actually testify. Read Psalm 14. There's none who does good, no, not one. And so John is just testifying what scripture says, what the reality is. But then listen to this. So he lays this out, and then he gets into this. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. That's the whole point of this epistle, is so that they don't sin. He's putting the fear of God into them. And if anyone sins, okay, who is he talking to? Believers. If you stumble, if you fall, we have an advocate with the Father, Yeshua HaMashiach, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And there's the proof right there. David is proof that if we slip and fall, you are not eternally lost. Get back. Repent. Because we have an advocate with the Father. But I warn you, if you willfully sin, as the writer of Hebrews says, you are as good as dead. If you are going to sweep your sins under the rug... And you want to ignore them and just continue on. You're as good as dead. You're in trouble. You want to be careful. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Amen? I mean, that's the reality. I want to close with this passage just to continue to show you the truth of the matter. James 5.19, Yaakov says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, It's kind of hard to wander from the truth if I was never in it. It's talking about wandering away from the truth, okay? If any of you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. You know, I could give you passage after passage. We could look at Galatians 6, 2 Timothy 2. I could take you to Ezekiel 18. The bottom line is is when a man truly turns back with his whole heart, with a repentant heart, not a heart of Cain, not the heart of Esau, but he turns back with the heart of David. 
he will be forgiven. Amen? So we'll close here. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you.